RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Take back your internet privacy today and find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com slash mission log. This episode is also brought to you by Mint Mobile. Cut your wireless bill to as little as 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash mission log. Mission Log Supplemental, Episode 56, The One with John DeLancey. Welcome to a supplemental episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. A little while ago, Ken and I were lucky enough to have a conversation with John DeLancey. Of course, we all know him as Q from Star Trek. What you'll hear in this podcast is a little different, though, and it's exactly the kind of interview I like to have. We talk far more about John's passions and interests than we do about his acting career. Uh, sure, there's a little bit of that in there, too, but you'll hear more about what he's been up to lately. John's been spending most of his time giving speeches and talking about the ideas that are important to him. Science, secularism, the narratives we tell ourselves to make sense of the world. We cover everything from Clarence Darrow to modern politics with many points in between. We hope it's as entertaining and thought-provoking for you as it was for us. Before the interview, though, we do want to tell you about one of our sponsors this week, ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN, giving you back your internet privacy. Look at you, sitting there in that coffee shop or that hotel, maybe, using that super convenient Wi-Fi, about which you know absolutely nothing. I mean, you know it gets you online, you know it's not costing you much, but um, do you have any idea how secure it is? Or, really, how insecure it is? See, the problem with public Wi-Fi, you're sending your data over an open network, which means no encryption whatsoever. The best way to ensure that all of your data is encrypted and can't be read by hackers is by using a good VPN like ExpressVPN. I've been using it for a while now, and I'm a big fan of how it keeps my data protected and the speed with which it does that. VPNs I've used in the past have sort of sacrificed speed for security. ExpressVPN does not. I've streamed movies, uploaded shows, and run flawless audio and video calls while using ExpressVPN. I've never had another virtual private network that was able to tackle such tasks as well. Protecting yourself with ExpressVPN costs less than 7 bucks a month. It comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. Whether I'm headed to a coffee shop like you or another state, ExpressVPN protects my connections when I travel and at speeds that impress me every time. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com slash mission log. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash mission log for three months free with a one-year package. Visit expressvpn.com slash mission log to learn more. And a big thanks to ExpressVPN for sponsoring this week's show. So obviously, Star Trek won't be you know, the thrust of our conversation today. But since we start as a Star Trek podcast, I, you know, 
one of the places I always want to start is before your involvement with Star Trek, pre-Q, um, what was Star Trek uh, in your life? Uh, Star Trek was mostly the movies. I was not a television watcher, and I'm still not. As a matter of fact, we don't have television reception at the house. Um, uh, prompted, perhaps, because I didn't know how to read. I was uh, very dyslexic, although at the time they didn't call it dyslexic. They just said lazy or slow mm -hmm. or hush-hush, mildly retarded. Yeah. And um, so my parents pulled the television out of the house, and um, so I just did not grow up with a culture of television, but I did grow up wanting to go to the movies. And so I, as a, as a kid, I used to march myself off to the movies at 10, 9, 10 years old uh, into, into our little local movie theater. And so I knew Star Trek through its movies. Mm. Um, and it was only, frankly, in, after I began working on the show that I actually took the time to watch some of the original. I mean, obviously, I knew about Star Trek, but I was not a fan. I didn't, I didn't follow it or anything else. I knew the movies, so mm. that's it. Well, it, you said you went back and you watched some of the TV shows when you right. got hired. It. What did you find? <laughs> <laughs> I mean. Well, I, I remember it really distinctly um, because I was in a hotel room to do a convention. And I'm g going through the television channels, and there's Star Trek, and I moved yeah. past it. And I went, no, you know, actually, this is an opportunity for me to actually watch it. Yeah. Well, what I saw was this. I saw a bunch of actors on a flat stage with some drapes behind them and a pedestal with a goldfish bowl and a brain in it. Mm -hmm. And I went, because you understand, you're talking to somebody who's an actor and right. I'm going, oh, this is interesting. God, drapes? Yeah. And they're all in a circle, which, of course, means to me that it's a lot easier to shoot. Boop, yes. boop, 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 boop. Yep. And then there's this thing going on. And I'm going, this is really sort of sad looking. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh -huh. I watched um, uh, Bill uh -huh. throw himself on the floor and gyrate on the floor. And I went, oh, very impressive. Very impressive that an actor who is trying to make a scene mm -hmm. work that perhaps shouldn't be working at all. <laughs> right, right. And that he was throwing himself into that. And um, I walked away going, um, I, I had great uh, admiration for the actor, Bill Shatner, for doing that. And that was my first introduction to Star Trek. Now, Obviously, I had watched the movies before, and I, right. I knew the characters and what have you, but I had not watched the original television show. Then people tell me, oh, well, that's uh, Spock's brain, or that's the, <laughs> and that's considered one of the worst, worst yeah, that right. there is. <laughs> and I guess it's towards the end of the three-year period because yeah. they had absolutely no money. Right. And, you know, and it was all, I went, yes, 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 I could see all that, I could see yeah. all that. But um, that was my introduction. But, but since then, you also seen some of the best. I have seen some of, of the best. Yes, yeah, right. Uh, right. And, and 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 mostly, you know, I, I don't think that I'm. Uh, I don't think I'm any different than most of the other actors. And that is, is that we don't tend to watch ourselves very much. Right. 
So um, our experience is mostly through the audience and and the fact that a story can can have such an impact on an audience, mm -hmm. that uh, being part of a culture can have such an impact on an audience, uh, that this is a tent that was created, mm -hmm. that people then you know came in under, as I like to say, uh, out from the glare of the sun and got some sort of sanctuary, uh, because there's no question that in 1965, I, is that uh, it started in 66? But yeah, the pilot. But in, in I mean, you know, those, yeah, those yeah. of us mm -hmm. who are of the age to be, you know, in high school in 65, and mm -hmm. you know, um, uh, you were you were mostly a sports fan. That's that mm -hmm. was what you. That, that's the. You know that's the part that you were supposed to be in, in, involved in, at least where I was going to school. Yeah. Uh, and I just couldn't. I just wasn't interested. I, I wasn't interested. I tried to keep up with with friends who knew the batting average of one person as opposed to another, but it just made no it it, it made no impression. Right. On me. right. And so, what did make an impression on me, though, were the stories that I began to see as a kid in, in the movies, and then. The stories that once I could learn how to read, which was when I was around 12 years old, where my introduction was, in fact, um, science fiction. And, and with that, my first book, and a book which had an enormous imp uh, uh, influence on me, which was um, Jules Verne's Mysterious Island, because I simply wanted to be like those guys. Yeah. Uh, the notion that that you could know so much and that you could um and and with that knowledge you could create mm -hmm. things was was extremely appealing to me well that's uh, with the fear of putting on my freud hat i mean my question tell me about your childhood because <laughs> I, I i would like to know i, I this is really interesting that I, i'm curious what what stimulated you? You're talking about going to the movies. I don't know if there were particular things that or genres that stuck with you uh, when you were a child, but then science fiction and science fiction books left a real impression on you. Um, I, I, I want to know what, uh, what what you did as a kid, and, and I want to know about your your home life a little bit because this will be sort of a topic that we get into a little bit. I'm curious if you had a religious upbringing. I'm curious uh, right. you know, um, what your education well, I, was Well, I, I grew up in a somewhat rarefied environment. My father was with the Philadelphia Orchestra. He was mm -hmm. a solo oboe player at the Philadelphia Orchestra and um, ultimately uh, taught and then ultimately uh, ran the Curtis Institute of Music, which was you know, all very rarefied classical music. Uh, in, in the rarefied classical music world, mm -hmm. um, uh, my mother was French, and uh, had come. They had met during the war in uh, in Paris, and she she came to Philadelphia, and she was an antique dealer. So you know, it was, uh, I uh, my, my experience was uh, probably the most significant experience that I had was in fact flunking out of schools. Uh, and um, it wasn't until I had flunked a couple of schools that I went to a little tiny school uh, out in the main line called the Booth School. It's no longer there. And with a, with a class, my graduating senior class, I think had 18 or 19 kids in it. So it was a very small little thing. And, um, uh, and it was there when I was 14 
that uh, a teacher, a wonderful teacher called Mr. Biddle, his name was Mr. Biddle, he was... He, he he was the soccer coach and the history coach and the and the and the uh, assistant principal and you know uh, he, he would come in every two or three times a year and he would say okay we're going to do Mozart's Marriage of Figaro and we were like well, I have no okay. idea what that is <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. and you know and his wife would plunk through the, the piano reduction of it and w and we would sing Mozart's Marriage of Figaro or, or or you know the entire school is going to do Handel's Messiah and we're, you know so we're like okay and, and it was springtime and he came in and he said we're going to do uh, at the end of the year you know in two months from now or three months from now uh, we're going to do um, uh, Henry V and and Delancey and he threw a book at me because I was, in the, of course, where any good D student is, well in the back of the class, right. talking. Okay. Yeah, uh, he threw a, a book at me, which you know, which was the script. It yeah. turned out to be the script. And he said, "You're going to play Hal." I could barely read it, and learning it was not a, a pretty sight. But when I did it, mm -hmm. um, there was a man who had come to see his uh, his granddaughter and her name or his name was Matthew Black and he was the editor of the Pelican Shakespeare's and um, which was kind of the school edition of all of the Shakespeare books that one would get in schools and he took my father aside and he said if you if your son has an interest you should encourage him because he has a flair for acting and that's sort of you know, and, f and as far as I was concerned, I just grabbed it like it were a life preserver yeah. because it was the first time in my brief life that anybody had said I was good at anything. And, and that's what started you down the road of acting? And that's what started that's... me down the road, yeah. When you talk about uh, being a dyslexic and not having, or having dyslexia, excuse me, and not really having a, n a term for that when you were a kid, it reminded me of, uh, I had a friend who I knew about 20 years ago, who talked about going through school and convinced that he was dumb because they didn't have a word for what he was. They didn't know it was a condition. It was just, it was just, you know, he couldn't read. And for him, finding out that, oh, by the way, this is a thing and this is a thing that people have was, it was like redefining who he was in a way. It didn't change how he had grown up. It didn't change his experiences. But to find out that, oh, this isn't me, this is a thing. Can you, can you remember when you found out, oh, that was that, that wasn't me, that was that? And, and did that introduce any kind of change in, in your thinking going forward? Yes, I, uh, very um, specifically so. I, um, when I uh, went from uh, the Episcopal Academy to, um, to the Booth School, the headmistress, Mrs. Booth, uh, said to my parents, I think that uh, your son Johnny might have a specific dyslexia. Now, I didn't know what that was. They, I don't think, had any idea what that was. Certainly, my parents didn't. Um, uh, and nothing was ever done about it. But as far as I was concerned, it was it was different and, frankly, better than being called stupid or slow or, as I said, hush, hush, mildly retarded. 
so that was the extent of it. That was just the extent of it. Um, to this day, I don't really know what the story is. I did see a, a movie, a, a documentary on it about six or seven years ago that actually brought me to tears. Um, and it was, uh, they showed it, uh, somebody who was a really good reader and they put them in a, whatever, an MRI, I guess, an imaging thing. So you could see their brain and, um, somewhere <laughs> in their head, uh, there was a little thing maybe the size of a walnut or something like that, that, uh, that really lit up. They, when they had to read, they were. It was really lit up. It was really clear that it, that's where all of the you know the, the color was coming from. And then when they they said they had somebody who had uh, dyslexia to go up and, and do the same thing, and there you saw the brain was firing all over the place, and I began to cry um, because. I had always sort of experienced it as a little bit of a storm. And there I I was seeing what looked like a storm. Uh, you know, like that. Um, I, this is about reading, okay? This is not about other things. Uh, and I think that for other things, I... I have been helped, perhaps. When I used to direct operas, one of the most um, marvelous ex parts of it would be for me is that I would go into my office in, you know, at noon, <laughs> close all the drapes, get the place really dark, turn on the music, and just close my eyes. Just lay there and close my eyes and see everything that I wanted to do. And I would do one pass, like like the layer of an onion. And I'd go, okay. And it would take me a couple of hours. And then I would do another pass where I would give myself, okay, I want to focus this time on where people are moving. Now I'm going to do another pass that's just what's the lighting look like. And I could do that. Um, I, I found it so, uh, I, I loved that time, you know, and I love the fact that, you know, I'm, don't bother me right now, I'm working. Well, for most people, you kind of go, no, actually, it just sounds, looks like you're, you got your eyes closed listening to, you know, La Boheme. <laughs> so, so, um, so I, I've never been bitter about it or felt victimized by it. But there are things that I, I know that I'm just not as good at. I, I have a real difficult time learning lines. It takes just takes such a long time for me. To, I had an acting teacher once who said to me, you're, you're, he said, I strange, your relationship with words is so, um, so strange. <laughs> um, uh, but I've always felt it was felt it this way. You know, um, some people just take longer to put their pants on in the morning. That's just the way it goes. You know, some of us, it just takes us longer to put our pants on in the morning. But the question is, is what do you do with the rest of the day?
There was something that you were talking about, and I, I watched the speech that you gave at the uh, FFRF, the Freedom from Religion Foundation, uh -huh. uh, a, a year ago yeah. or so. And uh, you talked about finding something identifiable in awful characters. You talked about playing a character in uh, it was a movie or a show uh, took yes, place at a right, concentration right, camp. Right. And um, so I'm curious if you talk to us a little bit about that, because that leads me sort of back to a Star Trek question. What, what piece of Q is you? Right. How does one relate to... Uh, an omnipotent, well, uh, uh, that, omnipresent that character. Was a, um, that was a reference in that speech that I gave. Mm -hmm. That was a reference to a character I played a number of years ago. Uh, Hans, Hans, is it? Uh, Bebow. Mm -hmm. That was definitely his last name. Um, and the difficulty, he was Bebow and Rumkowski. Uh, 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 let me just go back. Bebow was the Nazi administrator for the ghetto of Ludge. And um, the ghetto was producing blankets and uniforms and things like that for the German army. And he was the head of that. He, he ran that part, section. And um, Rumkowski, a very controversial f figure in the Jewish community, uh, was, the, uh, was the mayor of the ghetto of Luj. He had been the head of the orphanage before the, the uh, German Nazi takeover. Um, we had a symbiotic relationship inside the ghetto. His, his job was to save his people. My job was to create as many blankets and uniforms as possible. And everything was, you know, was, was going well, if you can say that. Um, into this comes the uh, final solution. So now the conversation between the two of us, between Bebow and Rumkowski, uh, Alan Mendel played Rumkowski, mm -hmm. a wonderful actor, uh, was just, who are we going to get on the trains? I mean, uh, you know, uh, the kids up until five years old, they don't have anything, they do not help the war effort. Mm -hmm. So since we need to put X amount on the trains on Friday, why don't we put those on the trains? So it's a very brutal conversation but of course it's done as if people were talking about you know how many how many bags of potatoes can we can we put on on the train um i had difficulty finding that character because the character is admittedly sort of a monster or at least he's devoid of any sort of understanding and so uh and i was struggling and i didn't want it, it to be a caricature or anything like that and i wanted mostly that an audience would see themselves part of playing a character is that the audience gets to sometimes see themselves in that character so i happened to be uh, at lunch time i was across the street and i was ordering something and the guy in front of me who was standing in line he he uh, he went to pay and a five dollar bill fell out of his pocket and you know i reached down and i said here sir you're five dollar bill oh thank you very much and that was it and as i'm walking away with my soda i thought you know i had another choice now of course i'm thinking a little bit like bebow i'm mm -hmm. in that mindset i could have stepped forward and covered the $5 bill with my foot, and it would have been mine. And the only person who would have known was me. 
that would be my little secret easily rationalized you know nobody's going to hit me up on it and i went ooh i think i've just discovered something and that is is that I don't have to play Bebow as a monster. I just have to play Bebow as somebody who, many years before, stepped forward and covered the $5 bill. And so it relaxed me to the point where I could approach it in, in a different sort of way. And it became kind of a life lesson. Because if you began to walk down those steps, it, we all do it, you know. They're the little lies of convenience, the, you know, like, oh, I don't really want to get into this, you know. How was your day? Fine. You know, you know, it's, it's, yeah. it's, it, I mean, that's the most vanilla of them. But I mean, they're, and they get gradated along the way. And so um, that was, that was the beginning of a speech I gave. I also went on in that speech to say that I had just played Donald Trump or a, let's just say, a version of Donald Trump, which is Trump 2.0, which was, you know, infinitely more charismatic and and particularly m much more articulate. Um, and, um, and I thought kind of long and hard about it because you're entering a world, in this case, where you're simply lying. You're just lying all the time. And you are you uh, and you're playing a character who um uh if you can get through the door first if you can grab the last cookie on the plate you know then i win and you lose so if you're moving in those those areas you you are practicing those things with yourself one might recognize those things in themselves and i'm of the opinion that we all have the ability to be almost anything it's just you know whether whether it's the size of a pea or the size of a watermelon in your character um and but if you start taking something which is the size of a pea and you start really concentrating on it and you begin to exercise that part then that's how you are behaving more and more during that period of time of the three or four months in which you are in the play. So that's what I wanted to ask you. Does that mess with your head? Because you're a moral, ethical, well, empathetic it, uh, person, right. well, and you, you walk you, around with right. this. You know the yeah. difference. Mm -hmm. You you intellectually know the difference. But what's really interesting about this is that your body doesn't know the difference. Okay, That's why interestingly enough very often especially when people are younger and what have you there are so many kind of romances that come out of out of um the process of doing a play you know let, let's say, take the classic one you know romeo and juliet if you keep on saying i love you i love you i love you i love you there's a point to which the body begins it, the body's going along in your mind you're going well i mean i don't I mean, I, I have a girlfriend, uh, you know, I, already and stuff like that. But you are practicing that over and over again. And I don't want to make it sound like it's you move into some sort of, I don't know what the proper word is, you know, pathological sort of, you, you know, you lose, um, you, you don't. You don't know what reality is or something like that, but you are practicing it. You, you are allowing yourself to, to move in that area.
So that was that was also the speech. I also went on in that speech to talk about something which is very important to me, and that is is that these little lies actually mount up, and sometimes the little lies are religious lies, where you know Jonah lived in a whale. Well, come on, you know Jonah didn't live in a whale, but you know, listen, maybe some people actually sort of believe Jonah. But an eight-year-old, when you tell an eight-year-old that Jonah lived in a whale, it's 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 easier than perhaps to say, well, it's really an it's it's an allegory. Well, you know, it's not how Jonah lived in a whale, but. That separation of reality is something which is current concerning to me. And the furthest extension of that was when I was on uh, on tour, Ed Asner and I, and, 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 and some other wonderful, wonderful actors. We did the Scopes uh, Monkey Trial transcripts, not, not Inherit the Wind, but the transcripts from the Scopes Monkey Trial. And we ran around the country performing that. And I came face-to-face -face with a population that I just have, had heard about but I've never experienced before. I've never experienced when the question was presented to a hundred college kids, a hundred college kids, um, if they thought that the earth was created 4004 BC at 10 o'clock in the morning uh, on October 23rd and 80 of them raised their hands to say yes, I, it was shocking to me because for my response, my reaction was not one of somebody going, oh, are you crazy? My, my reaction was, oh, oh, so much curiosity. So much curiosity has left the room. 500 years of things that we've learned has simply left the room. Um, and, uh, those were things that that's very upsetting to me because w we need to have w we are going into very very complicated times you know a uh, hundred years ago when people did not leave their neighborhood and you know they lived in their city they never moved and what have you uh, okay or or 500 years ago when they really didn't leave the, you know they all lived and died in the house they were born in now it's very different. Uh, um, climate change is very different. When when Bangladesh starts moving because because the water is going to force them to move. I mean, we're seeing it right now in in Venice. Uh, when when there are going to be major migrations of people forced upon us by just climate change and then all sorts of you know who knows what, what other. Uh, things that we're going to have to deal with as human beings. We need people who can critically think, who are not living in imaginary worlds. And that's why I spend a great deal of time on this on this issue. You and I have a mutual friend, James Underdown, from uh, Center for Inquiry West, who uh, just a few weeks ago we were at an event, and he, he said, as I'm sure he says to many people, did you ever think that we would be in a world where we're earnestly arguing that the world is round, yeah, <laughs> no, right, uh, right. sphere, spheroid, and not flat. But but yet that's where we are. And I, I I wonder what your take is on the idea that we have access to more information than ever before at any time of day. We can reach. We can find the best information available, and yet 
you talk to 100 college kids and 80 of them right. were we, we seem to be more stupid than we were yeah. uh, before yeah. this. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, my feeling is is that facts have become weaponized. Hmm. Um, um, interpretations um, um, there's a, a, you know, a tremendous amount of work is being done in disinformation. I mean, and I, I, I this is, this is uh, done to deceive, you know, um, and, um, and the population is, is in fact being deceived. I mean, I read an article a couple of days ago which just says, well, people are just having a really difficult time even following these impeachment hearings because it's just so, you know, boring. Well, you kind of go, no, no, no. It, it isn't actually boring. I mean, you need to understand everybody's point of view and what have you, but you need to be able to follow. There was a girl in this, um, in this, uh, uh, a young lady who was at this college who uh, she made a statement to me. Uh, what happened is that I had that experience with the 100 college kids. I was really blown away. And then that night we had a performance. And um, it, in the dressing room, big dressing room, all the actors are there. I mean, sort of the green room, we, uh, let's call it that. Uh, um, she was helping us get ready. She was one of the c college kids from there, you know, one of the groupies, as it were, that was helping. And I told this story to everybody in the actors were like oh my god okay and then i turned to her who had been very nice nice whatever her name was mary i said mary um would you have raised your hand she goes oh yes absolutely i said why why is that mary she said well god is my bus driver and i said you know mary i have no idea what that means uh she said it means i can go to the back of my bus and party hardy because god is driving my bus and I heard that. I understand what she was saying. You know, she re releases herself to to a higher power and what have you. But for me, it felt like such an abdication of one's own personal responsibility that it really, I found it really scary. And so I have often wondered, who's driving her bus today? Who is driving her bus? And does she even know? Uh, and... And can she make that distinction between, you know, where her bus is? I mean, does, and so that I pulled all this together with these, you know, the little lie, the little, the little convenience, the, the little sort of white lie, the little deception, uh, as you get further and further and further out into this wilderness. But now the wilderness is actually. <laughs> That's what you're asked to do in the in the world of intelligent design, which is a completely sham, pseudo scientific uh, uh, attempt to bring creationism into the public schools. Um, they actually have a, a document, you know, which was revealed called the Wedge document, which is teach the controversy. If you can keep that up in the air. You know, if you can keep that up in the air, which is oftentimes what the problem is, even just in interviews, which started many, many years ago. You have one person saying this thing, and then, of course, we get, a, get another person saying the other thing. Well, you might have 99% of the world saying what the, 
first person is saying, and then you've got one person saying, well, I don't know, I think, I think fish like to fly. Uh, and all of a sudden, it, it becomes an equal conversation. And I, I, it, it's, it's, I find it very, I'm, I'm waxing on way too much about this, but I find it very, very concerning. Here's the question I have, though, because um, I don't want to. I don't want to talk politics, but I never want to talk politics. And you already brought him up, so we will talk politics. Two days after Trump was elected, two days after Trump was elected, he stood up and said to a group of people, uh, "You know, they were calling for rain on the inauguration day." So I'm sorry, not after he was elected, but after the inauguration, said so they were calling for rain. But God looked down and said, "No, no, no, we're not going to let it rain." Here's the thing: it rained. And we saw it rain and nobody called it. I mean, and, and on the one hand, you say, well, that's just some guy being some guy. That's somebody telling an old, you know, an old tale or a, a, a tall tale, let's say. But then the problem is the next day he says the job numbers used to be fake, but now the job numbers are real. And, you know, okay, it's cute. It's kind of funny. And this is not even about that person. This is about religious leaders. This is about any politician. I mean, is it the job of people who want to keep critical thought in the public sphere to go, ah, 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 the sun went down at 6.05, not 6.03. I mean, yes. do, you, do, you, do you call, uh, so you call even the smallest mistake? Oh, I thin, see what you're saying. Lie. I mean, do you, do you have to, because... No, I, I, I understand what you're saying. Uh, no, I, I'm not saying that, um, you know... Don't misunderstand. Did you Forget like me. the sandwich I made? You know, yes, it was wonderful. No, it was a <laughs> the worst thing. You know, I'm, I'm not talking about that. Right. I, I think that when you become a politician, and that certainly when you become the president of the United States, um, the smallest is so much bigger than everybody else's mouthpiece mm -hmm. that then it does need to be called out. If you say that, um, uh, you know, this was the biggest crowd that was ever seen in the history of the world, um, one has to say, well, actually it was, you know, whatever, 658,000 people, you know, a number. It's not, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. so I, I, I just think politicians have... A, a responsibility to the people that they're talking to at large to to speak the truth to speak uh, to not exaggerate so that we can somehow be able to be able to um, uh, understand what's going on assuming though they're not going to do that I mean um, John has heard this story before and I think listeners have as well my falling out with the church in which I was raised was I had a youth leader who told us that something had happened. And I was I was kind of amazed and I was glad at the time. And I went to him and I was like, wow, that really happened? And he said, no, but it will. Assuming that the person in power is not going to tell you the truth, what is the responsibility of the person who's listening? I mean, do you stand up and go, hey, that's not right? Do you talk secretly to the people around you? Hey, that's not right. Do you write little things online and post them? I mean, what's the responsibility of the person hearing the lie. I think you have a responsibility with yourself to question, as you did, uh, and as I wish that that young lady had, uh, who was talking about the bus, that I think it's you, you need to question what, what it is that you're being told. Uh, 
I mean, for some reason or other, at the six or eight or whatever age I was, when they said Jonah lived in the whale, I just went, oh, it just doesn't seem possible. I mean, it just, there's something kind of strange about that. Um, you know, I didn't call the person a liar, um, but it got me th thinking. And I think that that's something that I'm concerned about that a lot of people are just not thinking. They are believing, but they are not thinking. And oftentimes when I find people who say, well, that's what I believe, and I ask them, well, what do you think? You get a click in there. They're, they 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 stop for a moment. So I, I believe that we're all capable uh, of thinking better, perhaps, than what we are doing right now. Let me kind of uh, figure out the right phrasing for this. I, I, there's something that is really challenging about this conversation with people who might uh, accept the lie, and it, it might be a, a, a banal lie like Jonah lived in a whale. I mean, right. it, it, the, the acceptance of a religious doctrine doesn't really live or die on that specific story. But the other stories, the other uh, uh, intentions of those stories might have bigger and bigger consequences. But if I ask somebody, do you believe that lie? Well, no, no, no. It, it, from the beginning, it, it's posited as truth and truth which cannot be questioned. So when you're having this conversation with someone who's a religious believer or, or even take religion out of it, a, a believer in a supernatural or all-powerful God, what have you, you're not saying, hey, don't believe in the lie. You're saying, hey, this thing that you identify with, this thing that, that you accept as part of, of your identity to the world, that is truth is not truth. And in my experience, it makes people dig in. It makes people... I, I agree with you. And, yeah. and I don't go there. Mm -hmm. I mean, I have some friends. I'm thinking of one who's actually a, a, a part of the Star Trek community mm -hmm. who feels very strongly that uh, when he dies, he's going to see his mother again, who's, who's dead. Mm -hmm. um, never in a million years would I say to him, I think that that's silly or I don't, how could you believe that or anything like that? Um, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. My, so I, I stay away from most of that type of stuff. What I simply say is, is that let's not get involved in science education. Okay. Mm -hmm. We need to have these kids be in the 21st century not in the 16th century, not in the 8th century. They need to be in the 21st century. You can still have God and evolution. I mean, surely your God could have created evolution. My gosh, sounds great. I mean, I don't have any problems with it. And there are a lot of people who are very religious who have no problems with it either. But when you take over a school board and throw out the science books, the biology books, and put in their place a um, texts that actually are not science, they are religious texts. Uh, today, today, what, 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 what is the date today, by the way? Uh, the 19th. Okay. 2019. Uh, and this is Tuesday. Mm -hmm. Last week, there was a bill 
in the Ohio, in Ohio, you know, very simply put, it's a little more complicated than this, but very simply put, and that is, is that if you are taking, as a student, taking a science test, and a scientific question you are allowed to answer in a religious, give a religious answer to, yeah. and not be penalized. Well, we are bending reality at that point. We are creating an alternative reality. And that kid becomes essentially useless in terms of being able to deal with the real problems that are going to be facing us as those 90 or as those 80 kids, uh, you know, who thought that the world was <clears throat> 4004 BC. That's where I have a problem. Otherwise, I don't care. You want to, you want to, you know, we're talking right now. I could say to you, there's a unicorn on the other side of the, of the, of the, uh, of the, of the door here. And, uh, while you might say to me, prove it. And I might say, no, no, I just know. And what have you, there comes a point where it doesn't really matter as long as it's not interfering with anything else. We'll get back to our interview with John Delancey in just a moment. But first, a word from our sponsor, Mint Mobile. If you're still using one of the big wireless providers, have you asked yourself what you're paying for? Between expensive retail stores, inflated prices, and hidden fees, you're probably being taken advantage of because they know you'll pay. This is where Mint Mobile comes in. Mint Mobile provides the same premium network coverage you're used to, but at a fraction of the cost because everything's online. Mint Mobile saves on retail locations and overhead, then passes those savings directly to you. Now, we've each been trying it out uh, for the last few months, actually, and it has been impressive. Uh, surfing the web, streaming music, yes, video, all of it works exactly the way that you would expect for a lot less money, though, per month. Mint Mobile makes it easy to cut your wireless bill to as little as 15 bucks a month. Every plan comes with unlimited nationwide talk and text. And with Mint Mobile, you're only paying for the amount of data you need. Choose between plans with 3, 8, or 12 gigabytes of 4G LTE data. Keep your phone, keep your number, and keep more of your money. So to get your new wireless plan starting at 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, Go to mintmobile.com slash mission log. That's mintmobile.com slash mission log. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash mission log. So you mentioned something uh, earlier about uh, intelligent design and, and its uh, encroachment upon schools. And you've been working on something that I want you to catch us up on uh, about the Dover Intelligent Design Trial. Um, a, a play, a script, uh, what, what are you working on there? Um, I've turned it into a play by virtue of the fact that it's going to be read. Um, a radio play, perhaps. Uh, 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 the um, uh, I'm definitely going to do it on the cruise. And then after that, I think I'm going to record it because I want people to hear it. The uh, and 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 it's just a lot easier to be able to hand somebody a you know a CD or, or right. a download or what have you. Um, the intelligent design trial took place in 2005, and it took place in Dover, Pennsylvania, and it was when uh, Christian fundamentalists took over the school board, and they 
they essentially wanted to change the curriculum and they wanted to introduce of pandas and people which is a book on intelligent design um, 11 I think it's 11 uh, uh, parents uh, sued the school board and it went to trial in federal court and it was heard by the judge Jones uh, and uh, it, what's sort of <laughs> amusing about it is that uh, it was a 40-day and 40-night trial uh, ending in a very, very definitive verdict that intelligent design is in fact nothing more than creationism which and it was proven absolutely beyond a shadow of a doubt that it's not science at all uh, this is an opportunity for me to give to those who listen some of the testimony that was in the trial and some of that testimony I think is really important to understand uh, things that I did not particularly understand in the same way as presented in the trial. And that is, what is science? Oh, we all think we know what science is, but actually, what is science? I can talk about what science is. Mm -hmm. I can talk about what peer review is. I can talk all the things that make up science. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I thought that that would be really informative for people so that they can understand. Um, um, it is not trying to take away a god it's simply saying it's not science so that's essentially what this trial was about mm -hmm. and also the trial was a uh, was to, to reaffirm the establishment clause in our constitution and that is nobody's religion is going to be represented in the public schools our audience knows you as an actor <laughs> they know you as the guy who played q um, and many other great roles, obviously, in your career. Do you look at yourself now as an advocate, as an activist, and you also act on the side? I mean, is this really sort of the the guiding passion in your life now? Or, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm curious how this has become such an important thing for you. Well, it's become important because at 71, I work less and less as an actor. And also, a lot of roles are just not that interesting. And my life is, frankly, a little more interesting than many of the roles in which I'm offered or, or, or could audition for. So um, uh, one of the things that Leonard, Leonard uh, Nimoy and I had a company together called Alien Voices. And um, one of the things in which I thought was interesting, Leonard said, and I think he was about 70 at the time when he said it, uh, I'm looking for tasty morsels, things that don't go on forever. I, 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 three months in a play is about as much as I want to do. The idea of doing it for a year would be just like absolutely not. Uh, a, a series, uh, unless it's really interesting, it's like, no, I don't know, really. Uh, we get to travel a lot. I just finished doing a, a rock concert in, uh, in uh, Amsterdam um, where uh, I was uh, uh, Arjun uh, uh, Lucasen asked a, a very well-known um, uh, musician, composer, uh, guitar player in, uh, in uh, Amsterdam asked me if I would do it and uh, and sent me all the songs, and we talked about the narration, and he said, I'm not 
crazy about what I have as narration, and then I ended up writing a new narration, actually, with the help of my wife, uh, and doing this fabulous concert. Uh, uh, I think something like four thousand people every night uh, for five performances, and you know, so that that was great. And then went to Iceland to talk actually on issues of uh, secular issues, and uh, then met with my. Oh, and did a couple of Star Trek conventions, and then uh, met with uh, uh, my son and his and our grandson in France, and then talked at the one of these conferences over in Las Vegas. These uh, uh, we did a psychon there, yeah, yeah. And, and then uh, and then went down to Mexico to uh, to speak there, and now I'm writing this uh, this the show that has to be presented in march so i i'm busy yeah i'm busy uh um i'm just not as busy as i was as an actor but i'm busy and i'm getting to kind of pick a little bit on the things mm -hmm. uh that i want to do i'm curious when you do an event like psycon or you, you do the speech that you gave in mexico you're speaking to a crowd who are at least interested in topics around secularism and science and and that's great in your other life, when you're going to Star Trek conventions and uh, speaking as an actor and a celebrity, I, I'm curious, you know, Star Trek is a show that deals with ideas and, and uh, humanity and what is our place in the universe. Um, it also attracts a lot of people with a lot of different points of view. You mentioned that you were uh, planning to take your story about the Dover Intelligent design trial to the cruise, the Star Trek right, cruise, right, I assume. Right. Do you do you get pushback? Do you get comments? Do you, I, are, are people generally very receptive to this? People are generally very, very receptive. Mm -hmm. um, um, so, uh, and yes, I, and I understand. I mean, I I don't want to be cramming my ideas down people's throats. It was a little easier to do the. Um, Scopes Monkey Trial, um, because that's a trial that took place in 1925. This trial is in 2005, and uh, and unfortunately, some of this trial has to do with lying, a lot of lying, so much so that the uh, that the uh, judge got in uh, and, and said, "You're lying." I mean, you're lying, and 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 and. Uh, uh, suggested that some of the people be held in contempt. Um, so it's an unfortunate uh, character portrayal of some of the uh, defendants in the uh, in the case. Um, uh, but it's what it's. I, I don't write anything that hasn't been said. So it isn't like my opinion as much. The this is this is uh, there are thousands. I, I dare say a hundred thousand pages of transcripts that uh, that we're going through right now, and um, this is an opportunity to to hear a very important tr trial uh, on this particular issue, um, having to do with with depriving kids of current uh, scientific knowledge, which I think is really really important. What do you think the right 
pushback the right uh the right tactic is you know I, I was so glad at center for inquiry that that was a full room but that theater seats 120 people right right not 10,000 people correct and you can fill a mega church with 10,000 people correct um this seems like a very uphill battle and and I'll go back to what I said before I think it's an uphill battle when you're even by implication, not, uh, I'm not saying that you're saying this, I'm not saying that other great thinkers say this, but by implication saying the way you view the universe, the way you view the world is wrong, right. or, or there's something misguided within that. Um, we talked about the internet earlier, and I don't think that that's necessarily been uh, a, a, a strong help because it allows people who, well, believe that the earth is flat to find each other and make a lot more noise. <laughs> You know? Right. So I, I appreciate the idea that you're doing these things and you're bringing this message as many places you possibly can. Does it feel, though, like it is a struggle without end? Well, first of all, uh, the general population is becoming more and more secular. Now, I'm not trying to keep people from believing in a deity. That's not what I'm trying to do. Um, what I'm just, as I said before, the, the most important thing is, is that, uh, let's have the, it's certainly in the scientific world, let's have the, the best information that we possibly can have, uh, without some sort of spin on it so that kids can actually learn what we know today. Um, I dare say that I think that there's going to be some real pushback as time goes on in this next generation as they are watching some of the bad actors the uh play the you know play the game out um it, it's almost inconceivable to me now we're getting into politics again but it seems almost inconceivable to me that people who uh, are great proponents of, of you know, the moral, morals and ethics and what have you are backing a, a president who is, uh, I'm sorry, I don't particularly like his politics, but I am just, my, uh, the lying that takes place takes my breath away. It just takes my breath away. And, um, and I think that younger people are seeing that. Um, um, that doesn't mean that you can't believe in a god. The the best I, I wrote a piece called uh, Jesus in a Sandwich, um, where I had the experience of going down the street in in in, um, in uh, uh, L.A. here, and on the street corner down I was in downtown, and on the street corner or, or in an alley actually there was a a guy who was giving kind of a Jesus talk. And I, I recognized it as being that, and I was passing by, and just as I, I saw, I heard, uh, uh, you know, uh, 20 seconds, 30 seconds of his, of his rap. And then he reached down and he handed a sandwich to each of the people who were listening. And I thought, oh, isn't that, that's really nice. <laughs> that's really nice. You know, that's the, that's, at least uh, since he was talking about Jesus, it's a, a Christian value of being charitable and, 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 and giving somebody something, in this case, food that they really need. And when the people left, you know, unwrapping their sandwich, there were like six or seven guys there. 
uh, it was just the two of us. And, um, and I just reached into my pocket and I gave him a $20 bill and I said, it's to buy more sandwiches. Uh, it, and as I continued to walk, I thought he and I have actually something in common. My, my reality sandwich, I mean, I have a reality sandwich. That's what I'm handing out. You know, it's maybe not as nice as the, as, as the uh, whatever the tuna sandwich he was handing out. Um, but it's still um, because I want to do something nice, and I think it's important that we all do that. And, and, and those Christian values are ones that I think are terrific. It's when they become politicized that I have a real problem. And, um, and then they get twisted and, and all this type of stuff. So I, I, I admired this guy. I, I went, wow, isn't that great? I, I'm not going to sit on the street corner handing out sandwiches because that's not what I'm going to do. But I can give money to him to do that. And, and I can talk about the fact that that's, those, those values are really important for people to have. Um, but not when, you know, not when the judge in the, in the Dover intelligent design trial says um, intelligent design is, um, is really a sham. And then you have Pat Robertson say, well, don't, if something terrible happens to you, uh, don't look to God uh, because you've just turned against him. You kind of go, no, we should all be searching for the same thing of just what is true. And, right. and in the case of the intelligent design stuff, it was really egregiously uh, deceptive and 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 um, in, intended to um, to fool and to uh, um, it, it it was just not good. I don't want to uh, turn you into Brian from Life of Brian, but I'm gonna. <laughs> uh, it's not your job to give people hope, but I'm curious if somebody were to come to you and say, "Man alive." everything and all of it and it's making me do you have a thing do you have a you know here's why i'm not despondent or, or here's what gives me hope yes what happened uh, last week i was in um in uh, puebla mexico at this amazing conference uh it started at uh 10 o'clock in the morning on um Friday with a gentleman from England talking about poetry and how he had developed a thing where people would come to him and say, I, I you know, my, I know my boyfriend left me or, or I have cancer or, you know, something like that. And he goes, you know, there's a poem that I'd like to give you. That would, and it's become so amazingly successful and people feel so touched by it that when he goes to the different cities, he has lines that take three or four hours and they would come in and they would spend 10 minutes with him and explain to them what their problem is. And then he would find a poem there. Uh, we went, wow, that was a 15 minute talk. Oh, I heard astronauts talk and architects and, uh, and uh, I mean, from every, every discipline in life. And they talked for 15 minutes and they talked all of Friday, all of Saturday and all of Sunday. To answer your question, 
hope as an actor, I like to know what who the audience is. So at lunchtime, I would go out instead of go, going backstage and being in the dressing or in the green room there, which was beautifully uh, there was wonderful food and all of these wonderful presenters were there and what have you. I went out front to discover literally because I asked about this afterwards that 50% of this audience 5,000 people a day uh, in one auditorium who you spoke to 50% of them were under 30 years old they were between the ages of 18 and 30 50% it was so exciting to me it made me feel so good that kids from all over Mexico, and I, the ones who could pay for it from other parts of the world, but the vast majority were from Mexico, were coming there. I was talking to some young lady, and I said, you know, I'm just kind of like, how, how old are you? Well, I'm 20. You're, you're 20. Uh, have you been here before? No, no, this is the first time. And I said, well, where do you live? She said, I live in Mexico City. And I said, so how did you come here? Oh, I came here with my brother. He's 17. And I went, wow, this is, this is terrific. And what did they come to? They came to for three days, not of, uh, uh, and I'm going to make a distinction here, not of education, which one could say was an educational period of time. They came here to be stimulated. It was, it was just ideas that were being presented. Brian Selznick, who wrote the uh, the book, the Hugo book, he came out and he talked about how um, uh, where the wild things are and how important that book was to him and and the whole notion about words and pictures and space and you know, on and on and on, fascinating fascinating i mean there were so many conversations and these and as i said 50 percent of the audience was more than half my age yeah and you talked about lying and i talked about lying <laughs> i talked not, about lying. not educational not, not educational, educational. Okay. yeah 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 can you give us a quick uh just uh, the the nutshell version of what what you talked about in that uh, speech about lying well I, for it, it or against it yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> i mean it came out uh, you know I, I said for those of you who don't know your catholic saints and this mm -hmm. might be a group that doesn't i didn't know it uh saint genesius is the patron saint of actors he's also the patron saint of whores thieves epileptics and clowns i've known this tidbit for years, and I've counted myself blessed to be included. Recently, however, I discovered that St. Genesius also represents lawyers. Actors, <laughs> clowns, thieves, and lawyers. Yeah, I, and I go on to say, uh, I, I've uh, petitioned the, the, um, the Vatican to get the lawyers thrown out. They could be taken over by uh, St. Felix, who handles spiders, or St. Uh, whoever it was who handles rabid dogs. And then I go on to say, the reason I, I, I'm bringing this up is that not too long ago, I had the experience of a lawyer saying to me, if I ever got you on the witness stand, I could destroy your credibility with the audience because actors are, by their very nature, 
professional liars. I then went on to say, I think it's important for people to know that's the last thing. Actors do not, we're not liars. We don't, we're not in the business of deception. We don't approach our work that way. We could not approach our work that way. We, are, we do not, we, uh, uh, acting is actually about truth telling. And the audience knows it when they see it. So and see right through to if you're lying, if you're not not truthful in the moment. Exactly, emotionally. exactly. Yeah. So it isn't whether we're being truthful. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're playing. One approaches a character who might be lying in a truthful way. We mm -hmm. have to approach these things honestly. So in any case, that that's how I I worked in you know came into this thing. You've been listening to Reality Sandwich with John Delancey. <laughs> yes, cold comfort. <laughs> Um, I know that we have to wrap it up, and I know, John, you've got work to do, writing, right, 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 uh, to make the world a better place. There we go. Uh, I'd be remiss, though, mm. I didn't ask because we're we're here at Roddenberry, yeah, right, and we right, know right, you from right. uh, Star Trek. Uh, tell us about Gene. My, I've had, I had a couple of experiences with Gene. Um, uh, my, well, let me see now. My first experience was is that when I auditioned and I walked out, and you know, this guy follows me out big guy and i'm pretty tall and but he was bigger than i was and he puts his hand on my shoulder and he says you make my words sound better than they are i said well you must be the writer and he said i'm gene roddenberry i had no idea who that was <laughs> and then he said well we're going to be seeing more of you and i thought oh my god i've heard this one before and then it was continued on to, to for to the door to get back actually to a rehearsal I was having at the taper. My next experience with Gene was uh, about two or three days into shooting my sec my stuff when I came back from Japan. Um, and I heard a voice behind me say, you have no idea what you've gotten yourself into. And uh, I turned around and it was Gene. And I said, what are you talking about? And he said, oh, you'll find out. So. And I have thought about that for 32 years. I have thought about that when I was in Mexico. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I thought about that uh, when I was asked to, I mean, it has so informed and so opened doors for me over the years that, I, you know, there are, there are times I go, uh, <laughs> in Iceland, I go, Oh my God! It's it's because of the show I did thirty two years ago. It's just amazing. Um, and then um, a couple of other times, I wanted to talk to him, uh, and and we had lunch one day about uh, airplanes because I had written a script about the Pete and Pole aircraft, which was a a kit that you could make you could make your own airplane it's the kind of thing they advertise in the back of uh, popular it. science you got yeah, it exactly yeah, seen those. and uh so i wrote a script about that and uh and so he and i talked quite a bit about that uh i just said i you know i i thought you might and he, and he goes oh, i i i've heard of that that's right i've heard of that and i go yeah well i know a lot about it i uh, uh i i was actually up in one and uh and you uh um, you had to supply the Model T 
engine for it. Uh, uh, but, you know, so in any case, it was that. And then the only other time that um, we had a conversation is that we we're trying to sort through something, a scene. And I said to him, um, you know, I think it would be interesting if I am somewhat controlled that, uh, you know, in playing the character of Q, you, you, you can't go around. It's like playing a king, you know. Um, uh, you can go ho, 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 and oh, like that, but that doesn't go very far, and the audience gets it really quickly. So, so as I've said in the past, I, I played a character, an omnipotent being who's too stupid to know it. Or I played um, an omnipotent being with clay feet. So I said to him, it, it, I think it would be good if I threw part of this speech up as if, as if I'm sort of getting message, like I'm talking to You're somebody. Answering to someone I'm, I'm answering. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not at the, at the actual pinnacle here. Yeah. So he said, yeah, yeah, let's do it. But, you know, a lot of those things are, you know, fast and furious. And uh, I'm, I wish that I had, I wish I had known the show, although maybe I wouldn't have gotten it because at that point, sometimes it's, it's, it's best as an actor to know perhaps not as much. I, I wish I had known to be able to ask him when he created the second half of that Farpoint episode, which included the character that I uh, uh, am in. Um, where did he draw his inspiration? Because it was only after that he, after he had passed away, that I uh, was told about Trelane, and um, there are similarities in that character. I like to think that what took place was that he had to write it and it had to be kind of fast and furious and here we go and you know I only have whatever you know three weeks to do it in or whatever it was and uh, he went back into his conscious or unconscious and thought oh that that kind of you know outrageous the little bit of a Trelane kind of Mercutio kind of you know uh, type character uh, was the one in which he uh, said, oh, that, that would be a good character to use. Where, what can I do with that type of character? It's kind of a Star Trek trope at this point. You run into the omnipotent being one week and then, then you're gone the next week, but Q actually stuck around. You know, yeah, the, right, that was right, the one that stayed. Right, right. Um, and, and you went back and you watched Squire of Gothos with uh, Trillane, Willie yes, Campbell as right, uh, Trillane. Right, right. And it, when you saw that, was there a little bit of recognition? You, you were like, oh, oh uh, yeah, okay. absolutely. I, I, you know, yeah, yeah, I yeah. do that bit, he does my bit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. I mean, I saw that there was yeah. connective tissue. Yeah, yeah. podcast.roddenberry.com The Roddenberry Podcast Network